A.W. Tozer once wrote about music, I say without qualification, after the sacred scriptures, the next best companion for the soul is sacred music. Sometimes our hearts are strangely stubborn and will not soften or grow tender no matter how much praying we do. It is often found that the reading or singing of a good hymn will melt the ice jam and start the inward affections flowing again. Isn't that true? The power of music, frankly, there isn't anybody that would doubt, I don't believe, believer and unbeliever, the power and motivation and influence of music. In fact, an ancient poet once wrote it this way, I do not care who writes a nation's laws if you will let me write its songs. This is the power of music. Perhaps you remember enough of your church history to remember that German monk by the name of Martin Luther who introduced congregational singing and harmony in the 16th century to replace the morose and monotone chanting of the priests. In fact, the German Reformation of the 16th century would eventually produce a hymnal and it was said that one of the most powerful missionaries of these biblical doctrines was the hymnal. It's no surprise that a Jesuit priest in the 16th century complained about the lingering effects of that German monk who effectively began the Reformation. This church leader said, Luther has damned more people with his hymns than with all of his sermons. Of course, we would say liberated, right? 500 years later, we're still thrilled and motivated as we sing, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never what? Never failing. William Carey and his associates, as I'm reading through uh, some of uh, their journals and their biography, in the 1800s were in India, and after several years, they had not one convert. The labor was difficult. Over time, they began to realize the power and the hold of Hindu music over the hearts of these teeming millions who they were trying to reach with the gospel. The missionaries had discovered that Hindu gurus were constantly writing instructive songs that they would teach to their disciples to sing, songs to the moon, songs to the river, or whatever. And as an aside, I'll tell you, after visiting India on one occasion, I remember when I was there, in fact, hearing hundreds of people singing over and over and over again uh, this one phrase. Of course, I didn't know the language. But I could tell they were repeating themselves, and it was actually beautiful. And I asked the Indian believer who was with me what they were singing, and he said, oh, they're with their guru, and they're up there repeating in song over and over again the name of their God. Well, after seven years of, of work, hard work, where Kerry wrote that preaching was like trying to plow through solid rock, a young Indian carpenter began to do work on their mission home. And they decided to teach him Uh, some of their own lyrics that they composed in the form of a little song in the Bengali language into a tune they knew. In English, the lyrics aren't really all that poetic to us, but they go something like this. Sin confessing, sin forsaking, Christ's righteousness embracing, the soul is free. And he seemed to catch on. So William Carey and his associates began writing more and more of their own songs, instructing uh, those who heard them with biblical truths. They would often go out in public. In fact, they talked about the one time the three of them, uh, Carey, Marshman, and Ward, went out and decided to just sing. 
Now, they didn't say they could carry a tune in a bucket. They just went out and began to sing their sermon and gathered a massive crowd. Often, though, they would come home with their faces bleeding because of rocks that had been thrown at them while they sang the truth of the gospel. The work of missions literally had become a battle of musicians. The music of Carey and Marshman and Ward was making headway in this unique way. Their 35-year-old carpenter named Krishna, in honor of his God, made the statement eventually to these missionaries that after years of singing the music of his guru, his spirit still had no peace and his guilt was unremedied. And then after seven years, seven years without any spiritual fruit, he gave his heart and life to Christ. And in spite of death threats, In spite of people surrounding his house, singing to his former God, you can imagine this, he made his way on that Lord's Day to the river and was baptized publicly, becoming the first of millions, millions of believers who to this day trace their way back, their heritage back to carry and and to lyrics, to songs alike, Christ's righteousness embracing the soul is free. There isn't any doubt to the significance of music in the life of the church and in the life of the individual believer. In fact, in the Old Testament, uh, the saints are singing. In the New Testament, they're singing. In the coming kingdom, they're singing. In the new heaven and earth, they're singing. Mankind, by the way, knows how to sing and, and resonates with music because he was created by a musical god. It's interesting to track through the triune God's appearance or relationship to music. God the Father loves to sing. In fact, the prophet said, The Lord your God is in your midst. The Mighty One will rejoice over you with singing. Zephaniah 3.17 God the Father sings over his beloved. I'd like to know how that sounds, wouldn't you? God the Son, we're told, while he ministered here on earth, sang. He sang with his disciples, Matthew 26 records for us, when he met with them in the upper room and, of course, instituted, well, as they ate the Passover together, instituted what we call the Lord's uh, table with significance and connection uh, to the past uh, redemption of the people of Israel, certainly the redemption of those who had become the church. And he's providing instruction. Matthew records that at the end of their meal, they sang a hymn and departed. Wouldn't you like to know? How Jesus Christ sounded when he sang? Well, I would imagine that because he was an ordinary Jewish man, Isaiah tells us so ordinary, nobody ever esteemed him, thought he was anything significant, that his voice probably sounds a lot like yours and mine. Just ordinary. He sounds more like me than David, I can assure you. So God the Son sings. What about God the Spirit? We're told that his very presence produces in the assembly a desire to sing. They sang in the early church and we 2,000 years later are, are doing it not because, well, you're just supposed to. There's a, you know, there, there, there is a litany of, of hymns and choruses to sing. No. The Spirit of God so reforms our hearts it leads us to desiring together to sing. In fact, Paul wrote to the Ephesians that being dominated by the Spirit 
being filled with the Spirit will lead a congregation to communicate with one another through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Ephesians 5.18. So God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit create, compose, compel sacred music. It should come as no surprise to discover singing then. Throughout the book of Revelation, we've already observed it on several occasions. In chapter 5, the church is raptured and they're singing, praise to God with lyrics, worthy is the lamb who was slain. We've also observed in Revelation the hosts of heaven numbering in the hundreds of millions singing to the glory of God, his attributes of power and might. Having just finished revealing to us in chapters 12 and 13 the faces of evil, the forces of evil uh, at work in the tribulation, the terror of Satan, the dragon, the deception of the false prophet, uh, the hatred and the murderous agenda of the Antichrist, you might be inclined to wonder if anybody will ever sing on planet earth again, especially the believer. At this point in the revelation, the apostle John would know the question asked by his readers would probably be, is anybody even going to make it? For those who've come to faith in Christ after the rapture of the church, they're living in these days of awful terror as God's wrath is unleashed on the planet. Add to that the vengeful fury of of Satan and, and his false Messiah. We've already seen the martyred tribulation believers asking God, How long, O God, before you avenge our blood on the earth? Revelation 6.10. The question would be, Will there ever be any strain or song or sound of the redeemed on earth again? So God in his grace stops the revelation and and hands John, as it were, a telescope. And he looks down the corridor of time and he's taken to the end of the tribulation period. He's in fact given what's going to happen over the next few years. And the first thing that John sees that will happen will happen at the end of the tribulation, and wouldn't you know it, it happens to involve music once again. Let's begin in Revelation chapter 14, verse 1. Let me just read a phrase, and then there are some things I'll need to say. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. Now, before we begin to listen to them sing, let's get reacquainted with this remarkable group of men. It it will have a lot to do with why they are singing. They were first introduced to us, you remember back in chapter 7, if you were with us, where we saw God redeem 12,000 Jewish men from, from the tribes of Israel. Every tribe was affected except the tribe of Dan, Perhaps many believe because the tribe of Dan was uniquely responsible for leading Israel into idolatry. However, there will be redeemed from Dan, the tribe. Later we'll see them uh, appear in the record of Revelation. There's no such thing, ladies and gentlemen, as the lost tribes of Israel. No such thing at all. They are not lost. In fact, they're all going to be accounted for as God redeems thousands from these tribes during the opening months of the tribulation as they respond to the gospel. So these 144,000 are redeemed Jews. They're not Seventh-day Adventists who believe that worshiping God on Sunday is the mark of the beast 
And only those who worship on Saturday are truly redeemed. These 144,000 are not Jehovah's Witnesses either. They're redeemed men who will deliver, preach, and teach the gospel around the world. And, and furthermore, they're, they're not chosen ones by aliens. There are religious groups today that believe the 144,000 are chosen by extraterrestrials to, to continue the human race following the end of the world. Now, that's really not that odd to say anymore, is it? More and more, you're, you're, you're hearing that extraterrestrials will have something to do with our future, and they've had something to do with our past. In fact, it's, it's interesting, as I listened to one uh, evolutionist, best-selling atheist who made the suggestion, which he later tried to explain it away, but it was on tape, that perhaps the earth was seeded with life from aliens. You know, the idea that uh, the world could explain away the rapture as some kind of alien abduction is not so strange an idea anymore, is it? In fact, I've often wondered if that would be what would happen. I won't be here to find out, but I wouldn't be surprised. The theory that millions of people have disappeared because of some kind of extraterrestrial involvement is now plausible to most people in our world today. In one Roper poll that I did as I just did a little research on this subject, taken as far back as 2002, 67% of the Americans polled believed in some form of intelligent life somewhere in the universe. And 45% of them believed intelligent life from other worlds are monitoring life on earth. Listen, you abandon the record of God's creation. That he created the universe and on this planet created mankind. You get rid of that record and you are open to just about anything. You, you get rid of the record of God as creator and anything is plausible. In fact, any explanation other than God is desirable. Even if it's an alien. Paul wrote to the Romans, who, by the way, were surrounded by their own theories of origins, apart from a creator, sovereign God. And he said, they've become futile in their speculations and their foolish heart is darkened, professing to be wise, that is, professing to be erudite, scholars. They became morons, is the Greek word, fools, who exchanged the glory of God for an image of man. According to this plain revelation of God, these 144,000 are not chosen by aliens to repopulate the earth after some cataclysmic event. They are human beings of Jewish kin who will prepare the path not only for a global revival, but especially the regathering of the nation Israel who will enter the kingdom in a matter of years after they've been marked and chosen. Now when these men... We're introduced back in chapter 7, and here again in chapter 14, we're told that they're not only sealed, selected by God, but they're, they're marked. You'll notice in chapter 14, verse 1, we're told the seal was the name of the Lamb and the Lamb's Father. This was a visible sign. This was a visible mark, mimicked, of course, by the Antichrist, who marked all of his followers with the number of his name, which we learned totaled the sum of 666, or 666. His seal will not be able to protect his followers. It will be, so to speak, washable ink. But God's seal, 
to protect these 144,000 marked at the beginning of the tribulation was a mark of divine possession and divine protection. Now, when they were marked back in the beginning of the tribulation, millions of Christians have already been martyred. Revelation uh, tells us, informs us in chapter 7 that, that there are, there are going to be martyred believers who come to faith after the rapture and they're going to they're represent every nation and tribe and people and language. But these men, marked, protected, will be unstoppable and their ministry will be global. John Phillips' uh, commentary uh, wrote of these men, no other age has produced... A a veritable army of believers like this, marching unscathed through every form of danger. It has been theirs to defy the dragon, to bait the beast. Their calling has been to preach the gospel from the housetops when even to name the name of Christ called for the most dreadful penalties. They've been able to laugh to scorn all the grand inquisitors of hell. They've walked the streets in broad daylight careless of the teeth-gnashing rage of their would-be assassins, true witnesses in the most terrible era in the history of mankind. The devil knows about this coming band of conquerors and writhes already in an agony of anticipation. They're not only selected by God and sealed by God, they are sexually pure for the glory of God. These men were known for their purity. In fact, you notice in chapter 14, verse 4, it informs us these are the ones who have not been defiled with women. They've kept themselves chaste, to use, as I believe, a figurative word, uh, parthenoi, a virgin, in the same way that Paul references the church that he will present as a pure virgin. Now, the misunderstanding of this particular verse has led to a, a, a tragic theology. This twisted interpretation that some have come up with in the early church, especially the 3rd and 4th century, developed the belief that a perpetual state of virginity exalted a Christian to higher levels than those who married. With that, of course, came the belief then that Mary, who must have the highest exalted state, would have been a perpetual virgin. Although the gospel accounts plainly give the names of her sons born to her after Jesus was born. Matthew 13. But the church so glorified celibacy that they believed marriage and the marriage bed was a defiling thing. The Gnostics in the early centuries, who always reversed the truth, held that marriage was actually from Satan. Not sure if some Gnostics had bad experiences or what, but they believed it was from the devil. Marcion, a church leader as far back as the second century, who was eventually kicked out for heresy, fortunately, taught that marriage was corruption. He even set up a church only for those who were unmarried, while all others were barred. You could volunteer to work in the nursery in that church and not risk any time away from worship. Thank you, sir. I'm glad you enjoyed that. You can keep laughing. I I know you quite, I I like your laugh. (laughs) This gave rise to 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 the tragedy of the monastery and the convent where people believed they were truly devout, believing that marriage was less holy than celibacy. In fact, they believed then and they still believe to this day 
that priests, bishops, cardinals, and popes must remain undefiled by women. You study church history, and first of all, you'll find priests, bishops, cardinals, and popes who sired many children and then absolved one another from the guilt of that particular sin. Celibacy did not create uh, greater purity. It created greater potential for immorality of all kinds. In our own generation, it's discovered all over again. It's fascinating to discover in church history that one of the things that Martin Luther, that German monk, did when he left the Catholic Church, effectively leading what would become a Reformed church, was find wives for all of his brother priests. They emptied the nunnery and and they married. In fact, Martin Luther married a former nun, which you can imagine didn't make Rome very happy at all with him. Listen, the teaching of the New Testament reveals that marriage is honorable. In fact, Hebrews 13.4 says, the marriage bed is undefiled. It is undefiling. How clear can that be? In fact, the Apostle Paul, who encouraged singleness at one point and in one letter due to the persecution and uncertainty facing the church, he likened the union of a man and a woman, a husband and wife, as an illustration. In fact, the highest illustration of all of that, of of Christ and his church. The mystery of the union of Christ with his bride. So these 144,000 are, are not kept from marriage. They're pure from the defiling immorality of their culture. A culture much like ours, where sexual immorality and promiscuity is, is approved of. It is applauded. And under the leadership of the Antichrist and the rise of cult worship, uh, at the departure of the church, sexual sin will become unhinged. These men will remain faithful to their wives if they're married, virgin if they are not. John writes further of them in verse 4, these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God. They're an offering to God and to the Lamb, and no lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Now, we've studied these expressions in our former study of chapter 7. Uh, The question remains for us today, after showing the depths of Satan's hatred and murder in chapter 12, after showing us the rage and murderous agenda of the Antichrist, after showing us the deception of the false prophet in chapter 13, will these specially marked evangelists survive? Will God's power be stronger than the enemy? Who would seek to kill them? Will God be able to protect them over the course of seven years of earthquakes and plagues and pestilence? Will they be protected from the rage of the dragon who will make war, chapter 12 or 17 says, against all who hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ? How could any believer survive? Especially these boldly testifying unapologetically preaching, gospel-delivering, Christ-exalting evangelists who are in double trouble, right? Uh, They're Jews, which makes them a mark, hated by the Antichrist, and they are Jews who've converted to Christ. Even more so hated will they survive 
anticipating this question that believers will have as to the sovereign power and control of God, the question John is about to answer is how many of the 144,000 sealed servants of God make it to the end of the tribulation alive? Now go back and read verse 1. Then I looked, chapter 14, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 135,000, oh, excuse me, 144,000. How many survived? All of them. And I love the way John puts it. Then I looked, okay, he's already told us he's saying, and behold, it's like, wow, would, would, you, would you look at that? All of them have survived the tribulation as Christ's feet touch Mount Zion. John is looking ahead to the establishment of the kingdom of Christ on earth. The number is not 143,999. Every parent, every spouse wonders if their loved one will return from some war zone alive and they cling to news of their well-being, right? Can you imagine how every wife, every parent, every child related to these evangelists will wonder if daddy's going to survive? If he's still alive. And they're going to cling to this verse during the tribulation like we can't imagine. Look, here it says, here it shows us that when Christ returns, gathering there, waiting with him here, are every one of them alive. They all survived. Now I want you to notice three statements that we did not cover when we studied these 144,000 special servants of God. In the past. First, they are standing with Christ. I'll give you two points actually. First, they're standing with Christ. We're told the Lamb is standing on Mount Zion. And these men, of course, implied standing with him. God, uh, God is giving John a vision of the end of the tribulation period as Christ comes to establish his, his kingdom. In fact, just as a, a mental note, chapters 14 and 15, which we're not going to study as a unit is nothing more than a preview of coming events. John's already done this. He, he gives us an overview of something, and then he stops and he gives us all the details. Then he gives us an overview, then he stops and gives us all the details. Now what he's doing is giving us the, the overview. But let's ask and answer one question right away. Just where is Mount Zion? Now it could be a reference to heaven. And if there are those who believe that, that would be fine. I think it misses the point of their survival, and I think the text will hint that it is, it is not, but it could be throughout the Old Testament. Mount Zion is referred to as, as the place of God's uh, throne. However, in this text, they will hear a voice from heaven, which further indicates it's on earth. Mount Zion can also be uh, a reference to a very special piece of real estate on the planet. In fact, it's the most carefully watched piece of real estate in the history of humankind. It's this little piece of land that David conquered when he was first established as, 
as king. It was controlled by a group of people, idolaters called Jebusites. And David marched with his army and they, they took this fortified hill. David decided, of course, uh, the, the plan of God was that he do so, but he, he decided to take that fortified hill and make it his palace. He built a city around that fortress at the top of that hill and he called it the city of David. It's also called Jerusalem. Right. Listen, the appearance of, of the Lamb of God descending to Mount Zion is a monumental moment in redemptive history. This signals the end of the tribulation and the coming kingdom of Christ. We, of course, with him. John The apostle is given a brief vision of this moment when Christ returns and in this particular part of the vision, the lamb is met when he descends by the still living, still serving, still preaching, still following, still protected 144,000 Jewish evangelists and they are all still alive. So the very purpose of this chapter's opening is to inform the believer that the victory of Jesus Christ is not only his, but it is for his beloved. It is for his representatives, those he marked uniquely to represent him. No one is lost. I mean, if you don't get lost in the chaos and cruelty and confusion of the tribulation, why would anybody wonder if God has lost sight of them today? Here they are in victory, standing with him. Hasn't this stand of victory been the subject of singing throughout the years of the church in a unique way? Certainly it has. One young 32-year-old preacher in the late 1800s was remarkably used by God in one specific event where he preached to 5,000 young men at uh, the Young Men's Christian Association. We know it today as simply the YMCA. It's a convenient way of dropping Christian out of there, but that's its origin, and some of them are more Christian than others. He preached to 5,000 young men. About 1,000 of them stepped forward to commit their lives to Christ. He was going to preach again that night, but after preaching that morning, he went back to the farm, his family farm, and decided to go out to the barn and watch men shelling corn with a new machine. He was fascinated by it. He got a little too close to the machine, however, and his jacket was caught and his arm pulled into the grinding gears of that machine, lacerated beyond repair. Primitive medicine, the loss of blood. In a few hours, he would die. His father was there and reminded his son that there were going to be a lot of people, perhaps several thousand, who would gather to hear him preach that evening. What would he once said to them? Through strained lips, his last words to his father were, tell the people to stand up for Christ. That night, the assembly hall was packed with people. They had come expecting to hear him preach. Instead of hearing him preach, they heard the news that he had died. And his last words were delivered to them in a challenge. A man by the name of George Duffield heard those last words and later sat down and composed a poem based upon it, put to music. Perhaps you know the hymn, Stand Up, 
stand up for Jesus, ye soldiers of the cross. Lift high his royal banner, it must not suffer loss. From victory unto victory his army shall he lead till every foe is vanquished and Christ is Lord indeed. Revelation 14 introduces this amazing message of God's victory through Christ and God's protection over those who've been preaching for Christ. Here they all are with the Lamb standing in victory. And this should be a point of encouragement, ladies and gentlemen, to every Christian in every generation. We also have been marked, we have been sealed, Paul wrote, by the Spirit. And the ones he seals, he does not lose. Not one of us will be lost. No matter how chaotic, no matter how confusing, not one will be lost. Now, John informs us here that they are not only standing, but they are learning a new song. Look at verse 2. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harp. Now, this heavenly orchestra and, and singers who are about to teach these 144,000 men a new song, we're told are playing harps. And you're thinking, there we go again, um, harps. Uh, I don't want to play a harp, and I bet you I'm going to have to. Well, uh, I found it interesting that the word for harp is the word kathardas. It happens to be uh, the source of our word guitar. Slight use of the word guitar. In fact, the Greek word was created by the sound of a string being plucked. Kitardas, 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 kitardas. Can you hear it? Of course you can. You're wondering why I'm doing this. Because I want you to know, kitardas. I thought that was funny. I'm sitting in my study, kitardas, kitardas. I mean, (laughs) Greek is a fascinating subject, let me tell you. Well, we, We have no idea what exactly... The sound will be, they translated here, harp. It could be several thousand guitarists. Some of you are thinking there's hope now. There's hope now. You know, and, 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 and I think if there are, David's leading them, don't you? I think he's out front leading away. Could be thousands of harpists joining in. We're not told what the string-plucking instrument is. But this song will be a new song. The four living creatures are part of the teaching choir. Verse 3, the elders, the church is singing. Yet we're not told uh, uh, exactly what. It's interesting that we're not given the lyrics. Why? It's their song. It's their special song. It's unique. We're just told they're singing. They're learning this new song by the hosts of heaven that they're able to hear. Maybe it's a new song because their experiences in the tribulation for them are unique. Let's face it, not many of us have walked through a flood. Not many of us have walked through the fire. There aren't many Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's in here who were thrown into a furnace and came out unsinged. Not many Daniels in here. Uniquely experiencing the provision of God. Just because we're all equally saved. Just because... We're all equally in the body of Christ doesn't mean that some truth isn't especially meaningful to you and to me as we grow in Christ. 
This is hinted at as, as Jesus explained the actions of a forgiven woman who had been sexually immoral. And, and here she is, she's, she's putting ointment on his feet, she's bathing his feet with tears, and she says, look, as he explains it, the love for me is great because she's been forgiven much. Her unique experience in life has brought her to a point of gratitude that you guys might not even sense. One author wrote this of the new song. These were the only ones who could learn it in the sense that they were the only ones who could appreciate what it expressed. God had purchased them from the earth, not just for salvation, but for their special ministry in this tribulation. You see, they are uniquely thrilled. They are uniquely prepared to sing this song especially composed for them. God has been faithful to them through seven unbelievable years. And they've been faithful to him. And they've got this unique song they're singing. I wonder though, because this is a timeless truth for you and for me, I wonder what song you can sing that's unique to you. I wonder what lyrics mean the most to you because of what you're going through. Maybe you're like the man I spoke with a couple of days ago who because of a fresh commitment made to Christ could identify with a hymn should he hear it when he made that commitment that goes like this, all to Jesus I what? Surrender. All to him I freely give. That word all means something to him now it didn't mean before. All. Everything. Maybe you're like that woman who called the office on Friday who prayed to receive Christ, now identifying with the truth of the old hymn, just as I am without one plea but that thy blood was shed for me and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. Whenever I sing that, I sing, O Lamb of God, I came. Maybe for somebody here today, you need to sing that for the first time in your life. Perhaps you can identify with these lyrics I was given recently that go like this. The anchor holds though the ship is battered. The anchor holds, though the sails are torn. I have fallen on my knees as I faced the raging seas. The anchor holds in spite of the storm. And you would say, that's me right now. Or perhaps with fresh trust, you can identify with the writer who wrote his close relatives, a sister and brother-in-law, a song just for them that the church adopted and has been singing now for several years when their youngest son was killed and they had such difficulty getting through it. So he wrote a song especially for them and the lyrics go like these, God will make a way when there seems to be no way. He works in ways we cannot see. He will make a way for me. He will be my guide. Hold me closely to his side with love and strength for each new day. He will make a way. What song can you sing today? 
You know, this is a good opportunity for me to take a moment and just encourage you to fold into your life sacred music. Music that will inspire and encourage you to glorify Christ, to stand for Christ, to patiently wait for some answer from Christ, to love Christ, to surrender to Christ. I wonder, who are your musical counselors today? I think we ought to be bathing our minds. I know I need it. I don't just need it on Sunday. I need it every day of the week. That's why 99.9% of my music is sacred music. Because I want to be reminded of truths that will encourage me to be faithful to Jesus Christ. I don't need somebody telling me that I ought to leave my wife or that she's just left me. I don't need somebody encouraging me towards sexual promiscuity. I don't need somebody to tell me to go after the things of the world. I need somebody to tell me to stay faithful. I need somebody to encourage me to pursue Christ. Who is it that's been singing to you this past week? You know, there's coming a day when Christ is going to come down and stand on Mount Zion. And that moment is going to be marked by music. Music. So stand for him now. Sing for him now. In fact, let the singing begin in preparation for that coming day. Let me close with the lyrics of one more hymn writer who took his lines from Revelation. And he wrote, Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount I'm fixed upon it. Mount of thy redeeming love. Maybe this is you today. Listen. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy grace, Lord, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Father, thank you for giving us this brief picture of faithful saints learning a song just for them. And we're not told the lyrics. It's an unusual moment as you step down on Mount Zion. We'll know the lyrics then. I wonder, Father, with the potential of these events around the corner, I wonder how prepared we are for the music, the lyrics of our coming king. Father, I wonder how much of our musical libraries would be left out when we worship you one day. Thank you that you allow us to be members of a church, but members of a church that loves music. Thank you for that. Teach us to sing. To not only appreciate 
the old hymns, but new ones as well that honor you and glorify you and exalt you. Help us this week to choose musical counselors to take us through it, encouraging us with the truth of Scripture. We thank you that you have given us a song, the song of the redeemed. It's a new one to us. We pray that more will find that song theirs, perhaps even today. Thank you.